Okay, today in a room in Millbank, we have the entire Green Party Parliamentary Party, and that's Caroline Lucas and me. And normally, when you say Caroline Lucas, people always put an amazing in front. So it's always the amazing Caroline Lucas, and she's here with me now. And we're going to talk about climate change and some of the things that people seem to always challenge us with, as if we don't have answers. And so today, um, I'm going to talk with Caroline about this. She's going to give all the informed answers. I'm just going to ask. <laughs> no the, pressure here. The, the, I'm just going to ask the dim questions. Um, now, Caroline's been in the party much longer than I have. I joined in 88. I think Not you much were... longer. 86, I was. 86? Yeah. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah, you yeah. see, you were already somebody amongst the sort of Green Party elite when I arrived. I was, so. a, I was the party's press officer. That was my, that was my uh, oh, right. lowly yes. job at that point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's, um, it's good to have you here today. And I think it's fair to say that although we're dealing with the same legislation that goes through Parliament, it's often quite difficult to, because the processes between the two houses are so different, it's mm. of, often difficult to, um, to, to share our experiences mm. much because um, we, we can't learn mm. from them which is which is tough but anyway um so some of the questions i want to ask you and chip in any time with your work because i know um we all like to talk about our work and it's quite difficult to get people to appreciate it sometimes so uh, chip in anything um we had We've just had the UN report, the Inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report, which has, I've got to say, depressed me mm. a bit. And uh, and the obviously the squashing of the appeal for the anti-frackers, which happened today, was an excellent thing, and that did cheer me up a bit. But um, now you probably um, read the report more closely than I have. Is it still possible to stop our world overheating? Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm delighted to, uh, to be here. Um, and I mean, I agree with you that IPCC report uh, put together by over 6,000 scientists looking at the best science, you know, on, on one level was incredibly depressing because it's basically saying we've got 12 years left before we uh, lose the opportunity to avoid the worst of, of climate catastrophe. So that was a really loud wake-up call. But I think in terms of your question, there was some good news in there in the sense that the report made really clear that it's not a technical problem that stops us dealing with climate change. It's not a scientific problem. It's not even really a problem of funding. It is, at the bottom, a problem of political will. And political will, one hopes at least, is possible to generate more easily than, than a new technology or a new bit of science. It needs the political will to simply uh, begin to take the actions that we know are necessary. So it's not like we don't know what needs to be done. We know very well what needs to be done. It's about mustering that political will to achieve it. And I suppose my hope is that because that report was written in such stark language, I'm just hoping that perhaps it will have a better job of waking people up to the seriousness and recognising as well that it's not... The report isn't telling us to go and you know, live in a cave. <laughs> the, the good news is that the kinds of changes that we need to make in order to be able to live sustainably on this planet are changes that are good in themselves. There's a better quality of life at the heart of this, as well as hopefully a better way of living on the planet. You said it's not an issue, a funding issue, and most people would say this. Uh, so uh, it is going to cost a lot of money. 
Well, it's going to cost some money up front, um, but as Lord Stern has said, and every time he's looked at this, he's one of the, the key economists, the key climate economists, um, and, and he will always remind us, first of all, that uh, it's going to be a lot cheaper to deal with climate change now than it would be to wait for 10 years and then to suddenly start to try to deal with it. And the costs of climate change are rising all the time in terms of the flooding, the freak weather events, all of, all of the damage that climate change is doing is already beginning to have a financial cost. But I think as well, if you look at technologies, I mean, it's hugely ironic that the government is, is pursuing fracking right now for lots of reasons, as you said earlier. But one of the reasons is that um, it's not going to make our fuel any cheaper. The head of Quadrilla, Francis Egan, himself has said that. Um, and at the same time as we are now investing in this whole new fossil fuel industry, we know that the cost of renewables and, crucially, of battery technology is falling. It's coming down all the time. It's extraordinary the degree to which the cost of renewables has come down. It surprised everybody, even the people who were you know, in the forefront of this industry. So renewables will only get cheaper as they get taken up more, whereas fossil fuels, nuclear, will only get more expensive. And so that's why I say, in a sense, it, it isn't that there's a major funding issue here, and in any case, we are the sixth richest country in, in the world, so we should be able to tackle it. It is much more about getting a different mindset from, from a government to be able to recognise the opportunities of making this shift. But we both say these things in our relative Houses of Parliament, and yet somehow the government just doesn't get it. And do, do you think that's just an ideological blindness, or is it because it's absolutely too frightening to think about, and so they just resort to, to old ideas? I mean, it's an incredibly good question, and, and, and I kind of feel I, I genuinely don't know the answer, because, I mean, with something like fracking, it, 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 it is so unnecessary. It, it is going to cause them, actually, masses of problems with their own backbenchers. What, what struck me at a at a debate in Parliament um, a few weeks ago about fracking was the number of Tory MPs who are now suddenly realising what the country will look like if it's got, you know, it was going to take 6,000 wells, I read, just to replace half of the gas we currently import. So, you know, imagine 6,000 Preston New Roads or 6,000 Balcombs or all these places that have been such hot points for, for protest and, and, and grief, really, for, for the government and for the police and for the uh, local MP and so forth. You know, why would they run that gauntlet when they really don't need to, when, when the renewables are, are cheaper and, and you've got the head of the, of the national grid telling us that we don't need nuclear for, for backup anymore, that batteries can do that because the technology in batteries is, again, coming on leaps and bounds. So given that the advantages of shifting in this direction are so clear, it, 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 it does confuse me massively. And I suppose it is just something about they are coming from such a different paradigm entirely, you know, that the, 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 the greener vision of how the economy could be, how our, how our energy system could be, is still so foreign to them, for want of a better word, that they just cannot imagine it. It's, it was interesting that David Cameron, ex-Prime Minister, um, who was very keen on fracking, actually had not one single application in his constituency, in spite of the fact that it has a very good ge geological profile for fracking. And it does make you wonder what's going to happen to local MPs, like uh, Ben Wallace, who is the Ministry, Minister for Security, um, who's got uh, Preston New Road in his constituency. I think he's going to find it'll some challenges. Be, it'll be really interesting. And I, and I think, just, just to finish off the thought on that question, is 
you know, may, maybe it's just that they are listening to the wrong people all the time. And one of the things I know both of us have been anxious to expose in our work is the amount of corporate lobbying that goes on in this place. And some questions that I put some years now about the number of people from the um, fossil fuel industries who were actually in Whitehall being seconded into the Department of Energy in order to advise the government. If you choose to surround yourself with people who've got a vested interest in the status quo, then I guess you don't get to hear the other side of it. And giving you essentially what is misinformation on, on the current Completely. term, current state. Um, uh, this is a very tough question, but imagine we have a green government next year, as we would both like, if we had a different <laughs> okay, voting system, and, yep. um, and Greens could take the government. What would be your top priorities for the first 100 days? Well, I think part of it would have to be about undoing some of the damaging decisions that are currently in train. So one part of what you'd want to do is... Uh, ending fracking, uh, you would be cancelling airport expansion, you would cancel HS2, you'd do actually quite a lot of cancelling because I think Hinkley would go down the same way. You'd reverse the current ban on onshore wind, you would put back the support to, to solar and so on. So in a sense, you'd be just trying to get all of those measures moving in the, in the right direction. Did you um, mention Trident? I didn't mention mm, Trident. That's well another spotted. money that spinner. That is a very we... large money spinner, and uh, and the money you could use from the, what is the figure now? Um, it, it, it keeps it's, going it's, up. It's about at least track. about 100 billion that, that, that people say that you would save from cancelling Trident over the 30 years of its of its lifetime. So with that, you could do so much. So I think you, what you'd want to do is to set up a national investment bank. Of course, this government sold off the green investment bank. So let's have a national investment bank that would be making every single home in the country properly energy efficient, for example. I mean, it is a scandal that um, in the sixth richest country, we still have thousands of people literally dying every year from fuel poverty because they can't afford to heat their homes. So a mass insulation program might not sound very, uh, very exciting, but essentially it would be a massive job creation program. It would save huge amounts on people's fuel bills so that they, their, their fuel bills would come down and it would also get some of our climate emissions down. So we used to talk about this program being a kind of a green new deal. We were looking at Roosevelt in the US who had the new deal at the time to get the US out of the financial difficulties it was in in the 30s. We need a kind of a, a green Marshall plan or a green new deal that would be absolutely about retrofitting this country so that it was more resilient to climate and that, so that it would... Um, so that it would have far fewer emissions. You've made the link there between um, environmental um, legislation and, of course, social legislation or social improvement, because we can't do the one without the other. And in green politics, these two are inextricably linked. And people often don't understand that, that we have superb social policies in our manifestos. We do, and I think we are absolutely clear that social justice and environmental justice are inextricably linked. We recognise that it's the poorest people who suffer the most from environmental problems. I mean, something like air pollution, it's not even an environmental problem, is it? I mean, it's a health problem, it's a, it's a health crisis. Um, and it's the poorest people who suffer the most from that because they can't move away to leafy suburbs, they are stuck on the, on the main roads. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an issue of social justice from that perspective. But I also think in terms of the bigger economic picture, if we're going to um, be able to ensure that, that everyone has a decent quality of life, which is what we would want to do, then I think that's going to mean a massive redistribution of current wealth. If you're not going to get current new wealth through more and more 
old-style economic growth, then I think that really does shine a, sh a, sh a spotlight on, uh, on redistribution, which is why we've got some fantastic policies, like, for example, a company would have a maximum pay ratio of, say, 1 to 10, so that if the boss of the company decided he or she wanted a pay rise, well, that's fine, but then it brings everybody else up in the, in the company too, so the person who's you know, cleaning the, the offices of the company at night is not ever going to earn less than a tenth of what the person at the top does. When I was on the London Assembly, I explained to senior officers um, or, or civil servants that I'd be happy on a salary of £25,000 if everybody could have the same, the cleaners and everybody. And they thought that was absolutely barking mad. But I can see with the Green government, I've become <laughs> it's, very it's sensible. One of the problems, of course, with dealing with climate change is that most governments only five years. Um, I mean, we can hope this government perhaps doesn't last five years. But, um, and, and so there's always a short-termism about policies, and that's where the Green Party does differ, because we're actually looking at the long view. But we still have to deal with short-term politics, short-term um, uh, governments. And so... What do you think we would have to do by the end of five years to make sure we got re-elected? Well, that's a very good question. Um, well, I think it is about demonstrating the social policies as well as the environmental policies. And I think it will be about showing that tackling the environmental crisis is a route to a better quality of life. So I think what we would need to be able to demonstrate is that um, some of the poorest people in our society are actually going to do best out of a green government because we are going to make sure that those anti-poverty policies are front and centre and that we're going to be bringing public services back into public ownership, for example, so that public services would be run better and so that our NHS isn't being fragmented and basically bits of it sold off to the highest bidder. So I think whichever area of, of government you're looking at, it would be more about demonstrating that we are true to our word when we say that, um, that social justice is at the heart of our policies as well. So you could look at individual areas of policy, if, if, if you like, in order to be able to, to demonstrate that's the case. And, and maybe house building would be you know, one of the key ones. We've got a massive housing crisis. You're not going to solve that in five years. But if in five years you could ratchet up, for example, the percentage of affordable housing that was being, bought, uh, being built, rather, if you could... Um, genuinely roll out what we would see as a free um, uh, insulation program because in fact there's been plenty of evidence that shows that the job creation element of that policy would make so much more tax coming back to the revenue that very soon it becomes actually a, a, a revenue neutral intervention to make. So I think you'd want people to be seeing really concrete positive benefits from the shift to, to a greener government. And yes, the house building is going to take more than five years, and the changes to, to land policy, a land value tax, for example, which is about basically trying to ensure that homes are for living in, not for speculation by, by you know, big financial organisations. You need enough that's going to be tangible quickly enough, I think, for people to have that confidence that they can put the cross in that same box again. There was um, a, a suggestion on Twitter today, which I thought was excellent, which was to have a design competition for a, uh, a sort of ready-made house that had, was fully compliant with all our um, climate change-resistant needs. And I thought, what a good idea, because councils could use something like that, a, a sort of 
as we built those all those prefabs Absolutely. after the wars, use industrial land and not use um, green green belt Absolutely. and areas we want to protect. I think that's a great idea, and I, I think it would be a very visible manifestation of what we're talking about. It would be something you could do very quickly if you did it in the way that uh, uh, that, that that proposal suggests, um, and and it would give that sense of urgency to this because. You know, I, I, I know it's the same in London, it's certainly the same in, in, in Brighton. It, it is so shaming, I think, to all of us to be walking down streets where there are people living on those streets in such, in such dire circumstances. And, and a lot of that is to do with the government's welfare policies, its housing policies. It's been warned time and again that if it you know, took away support from um, uh, under 21s when it comes to housing benefit, you know, they were warned by any number of, of housing charities that would lead to disaster, as it has. And if we could have practical policies straight away that were tackling something like that, I think that really would give people confidence in, in the sense that, that we knew what we were doing and we were going to be trusted. That's the key thing, because there's so little trust in politics now. I went to the Home Office yesterday to, to have a meeting, and as, as I walked around the block, there's actually a hostel there for the homeless. And so there are lots of homeless people on the street, and I thought, it's great, all those Home Office ministers actually have to walk past these homeless <laughs> people every time they, they go to work. Yes. Um, I'd like to ask you if you feel that nuclear power has any role to play. Um, people say that we need it to provide a base load of energy for, the, for when the, the sun doesn't shine and the wind doesn't blow. Um, I mean, my answer is absolutely not, no way, it's too dangerous. But do you have any sort of moderated reaction to it? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't think I'm, I'm going to be any more moderate. moderate. Uh, but I, I, I do think it's interesting, as I say, that the, um, the guy who heads up the, the whole of the grid, um, the, the electricity grid through which the, uh, our electricity comes, I can't remember his name now, but he has himself said... That, uh, that the idea that we need nuclear as backup is wrong. So I think that's incredibly helpful to have someone, not you, know, you or I, to be with, with all great respect, are, are, are kind of usual suspects, I guess. Whereas to have someone like that, who's running the grid, saying, no, that battery, batteries are going to be the new, um, uh, the, the new baseload, if you like, I think is incredibly helpful. And when you just see, again, how quickly um, the cost of batteries is coming down and the technology is, is, is advancing so massively that... Everything that I read and, and talking to experts and so forth suggests that that is going to be possible far more quickly as well as far more cheaply than a massive amount of new nuclear power is ever going to be. Nuclear is so... Um, it, it's so old-fashioned in a way, in a sense. It's so centralised. It's the, exactly the wrong kind of grid because what we want is everyone's homes to be to be um, power stations. We want new homes to be uh, fitted with, with, with renewable energy sources wherever possible, whether that's solar panels or ground source, heat pumps or, or, or whatever. So our homes are going to be increasingly generating our power. And so you need a distributed network so that that can be fed into the electricity grid. Nuclear, basically massively centralised, hugely expensive. If you look at anywhere in the world where a nuclear power station is being built now, there aren't actually very many places for good reason, but they are hugely over budget and they are hugely late. Um, I'd be surprised, frankly, in spite of all of the money that's being spent on Hinkley, if it actually gets turned on, because by the time it's ready, other sources of energy will be so much cheaper that it would be bonkers to go ahead with it. And then, of course, they never take into account the waste. Um, how do you deal with the waste? I mean, that, that can cost, again, a huge amount. Um, one thing I hear constantly from, um, 
I was going to say conservatives, but, but, but all the par other parties actually, is that technological change is going to be what saves the world. And that, you know, if we all drove electric vehicles and we all recycle properly, we'd be fine. It's really interesting, isn't it, that, um, that kind of blind faith that, that something's going to come along and stop us for, from having to make the, the, the deeper systemic changes in the way that we live on this planet. Um, and, and the irony about that, in a sense, is that if we were to change the way we lived on this planet, so for example, if we were to be operating on a, on a shorter working week, uh, if we were to um, have public transport as the usual means of getting from A to B, and you only use the, the, the car when you absolutely needed to, and that would be possible to do because you'd have public transport being so much more affordable or free, you'd have it going to villages at night, you know, you'd have smaller little buses or bigger taxis or whatever it would be. You would just basically work out a system where that would be your first call, not, not the private car. You know, these changes that we're talking about making are all ones that would increase our, our, our quality of life. It's so funny that the other parties basically have so little imagination, really. So, so for them, you know, getting from A to B is always done in a metal box and 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 a very small metal box, a personal vehicle. And um, and you know, we can argue about about what powers it, but for them, we're still going to have an awful lot, millions and millions, is of these little metal boxes moving around. And that possibility of taking a step back and saying, actually, what people want is accessibility to things. They don't necessarily want greater and greater mobility. They want to know that they can get to the things they need in an easy, cheap way. And we can do that in a far better way than trying to just simply change the energy source of, of business as usual. It's a classic mistake for people to think that there's some sort of magic bullet. I mean, Al Gore said there is no magic bullet to solving climate change, but there is silver buckshot. And so a lot of things can contribute, including electric vehicles, but they are absolutely not the answer because they still kill people and take up road space. And, and, that's and all of the minerals that still go into making absolutely. them. Absolutely, and then, and then they get scrapped as well. Um, people do have fears, particularly the other political parties, that um, we, our policies will inhibit wealth creation, that we'll lose a lot of our high flyers, they'll go abroad and, um, and we will lose all their skills and all their employment, of course, the people that they employ. How do you answer that? Well, I would just say that that's always, you know, that, that, that threat that is always made, that if you, if you do anything remotely different or progressive, then, then everyone's going to kind of leave the country and, and, and turn the lights off. Has been a threat that's been wielded out so many times, you know, when, for example, the minimum wage was first introduced or maternity pay or slightly higher environmental standards. It's always the threat that's used that you're going to chase away wealth creation. And I, and I simply don't think it's been shown to date. Um, people cry wolf all the time and, and, and it hasn't happened. If some of the people that go away are some of the people who are frankly ripping us all off anyway and creaming off the assets of this country, then, well, good luck to them. I'm not going to be that sad to see them go. But I, th I think, you know, that this debate that we're having in this, in this room in, in London just now is being had in so many other countries, you know, many of which are actually moving faster than, than we are. And, and often the same sort of people that are that are saying, um, you know, we're going to lose all of our investment are the same people as, that are saying, well, you know, if we don't, um, if, if China and India don't, don't, don't change, then what's the point of us changing? But the reality is that China and India actually are changing. Uh, I mean, that's what's quite exciting about this. So I think we've got to recognise that 
that this is part of a global movement, this debate is part of a global process. And so hopefully as well, it's not just going to be us talking about this, it's going to be um, governments and political parties in, in countries right across the world. Now, you said a lot about what governments can do. What would you say individuals can do? I mean, apart from, obviously, putting an X in that green vote box, what, what, can, what do you think is the biggest thing individuals can do? Um, if individuals are in the lucky position of having money invested somewhere, uh, in a pension fund, for example, they could look to ensure that that pension fund is investing in the greener economy rather than the the browner fossil fuel economy, and lots of those divestment strategies actually are really making people sit up and, 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 and think. Um, and we've seen the churches, we've seen um, you know, some big institutions now beginning to shift their money. And, and shifting money is, is quite a powerful thing to do, because not only are you taking your money away from the bad things, but you can put them into the good things, the greener energy, for example. So I think if, if you are in the position of having a, a pension fund of any kind, that's something that you could do. I think you could change your own electricity source. You could uh, sign up with a green energy company. Quite often now, there are organizations who will help you do that and can quite often get you even onto a cheaper tariff than you're on. I mean energy companies work on the basis that we're all too busy to actually sit down and sort out swapping between different energy sources, uh, energy uh, companies. But there are now people who, who know a lot about this, who will help you for free, uh, and, and so that's something you could do. There are things you can do in your daily life all the time. There's a big debate that actually we've not touched on yet, really, which is around diet and around meat and dairy. And going back to that intergovernmental report that we were discussing at the, at the beginning of our conversation, it made a, a big focus on land use and on the fact that we need to be eating far less meat and dairy. Green Party policy would be absolutely to support that, to make sure that there were vegan meals available, you know, in schools, in hospitals, in, 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 in wherever you are. Um, but people can choose to make those kinds of, of, of decisions around what they eat. And again, the great news is that that would also probably be a healthier diet as well. I mean, the, the list goes on, doesn't it? Allotments, gardens, um, planting more. Um, but what I want to say is that, although I think there's an awful lot that individuals can do, I think getting the government to make it easier to do those things is crucial, which is why this systemic change is where, I guess, the Green Party focuses, because you quite often get politicians kind of guilt-tripping the public or kind of making it really sound that if you just were to boil your kettle with a little less water, then the, the, the problem would be solved. And, and the gall, frankly, of a government saying that, while at the same time it's continuing with airport expansion, road expansion, fracking, and so on and so forth, is, is, is beyond contemptible. I've got uh, just two questions left, and one of them is, really, I want you to get... Uh, I want to... Uh, I want you to promise me something, mm. and that is that if we get a Labour government and they offer you some sort of ministerial post, I'd like you to hold out for the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Would you... <laughs> Don't, don't take environment. I absolutely agree you with know, you about You need that, to control actually. the money. I think that's absolutely true. And we always say that if you want to judge how green another political party is, don't just look at the green trimmings they've stuffed into their environment section of their manifesto. Go straight to the economic section. Exactly. And finally, what would you say to President Trump if he were here in the room? Apart from take your hands off me. <laughs> yes, I'm just trying to think about how not to swear on air, really. I mean, what would you say to him? God... No, that's, it's, it's, that's fine. It's he leaves us speechless. He, he has left me speechless. He has.
but get out probably is what yes, I'd yes, say. Yes, yes, go away. Um, thank you so much for doing this. No, well, thank it's you absolutely for fantastic. And um, I hope we've covered some of the issues that people always raise with our screens about how impractical we are. And in fact, of course, we're not. We are the party that's actually showing. It's really important. It's quite an emotional thing that they're going to have a planet that occasionally has orangutans and yes. has, still has insects so that they can yes. eat and things like that. And we're the party of hope, I think, as well, because there's so much grimness out there. We've been asking these questions for decades longer than the others. We don't say we've got all the answers, but at least we've been asking the right questions, and I think we've got some, some hope to share. Thank you. Thank you.